Galatians chapter 2. I'd like to read verses 1 through 10. Galatians 2 verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read out of the HCSB today. Galatians chapter 2. Paul is writing. He's continuing from chapter 1. There's a chapter division, but the thought is continuing from chapter 1. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up because of a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders, so that I might not be running or have run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This issue arose because of the false brothers smuggled in, who came in secretly to spy on our freedom that we have in the Messiah Yeshua in order to enslave us. But we did not yield submission to these people for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain for you. But from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me. The Almighty does not show favoritism. Those recognized as important added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised just as Peter was for the circumcised. For he who was at work with Peter in the apostleship to the circumcised was also at work with me among the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. We begin chapter 2 today of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We learned a lot going through the material in chapter 1. I know I learned a lot. Hopefully you did as well. Let me go over a few of the things that we talked about we learned. We learned that Paul wrote this epistle to the saints among the nations, specifically the saints at Galatia. These people had grown up outside the land of Israel and many of them grew up worshiping heathen mighty ones. They had came to faith in Yeshua as the Messiah, son of Yahweh, but they were uncircumcised and they were foreign to much of the Torah. So that's one thing we learn. A second thing is we learn that the gospel is paramount. The good news of the Messiah is something that should not be negotiated. Adding something to the Messiah for salvation meant that you distorted the gospel. And Paul pronounced a curse upon people who did this. We also learned that Paul received his gospel in a unique way. He didn't sit in on a gospel sermon. He didn't receive the gospel like most of us receive the gospel. He got it directly from the Master in heaven. Yeshua, the son of Yahweh, knocked Saul of Tarsus down on his way to persecute believers and changed his focus. And in our last couple of lessons, we talked about Saul staying in Damascus and Arabia for three years, and then he went up to Jerusalem to get to know Kepha, Peter, and Yaakov, James. And today, we're going to see how much he respected these brothers, Peter and James. Paul revered their eldership and their authority in the Messiah. It's just that he did not receive his gospel from them, but it did not mean that he did not have respect those brothers. So we start in Galatians 2. 
Galatians 2.1 says that 14 years later, Saul went back to Jerusalem. So it was a long time between his first trip where he became acquainted with Kepha and Yaakov. As a Messianic believer, as a believer in the Messiah, he became acquainted. And a long time later, he went up to Jerusalem again for his second trip since becoming a believer in Messiah. And the text tells us in verse 1 that Paul took two men with him. He took Barnabas, a Hebrew. His name actually was Yosef. And they called him or surnamed him Bar-Naba, which is an Aramaic term for son of encouragement or son of consolation. Yosef must have been a pretty nice fellow to get a nickname like son of encouragement. He must have been a nice guy. Well, Barnabas had been with Saul, Paul, for a long time. Barnabas was the man who first brought Saul of Tarsus to the apostles when everybody was kind of shaky on thin ice. We don't know about this guy. This guy persecuted us, so we're not sure about him. Barnabas, who was a Levite, took Saul of Tarsus and brought him to the apostles, the original apostles of the Messiah, and explained to the apostles how that Saul had met Yeshua on the road to Damascus and how in Damascus Saul had then spoken boldly about the Messiah. In Acts 11, verse 24, Barnabas is called a good man, and he's said to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Once again, Barnabas was a Levite by birth, and he had grown up in the Hebrew faith. He was circumcised the eighth day, and he was taught the Torah his entire life. Barnabas was one of the early covenant Israelites to come to faith in the Messiah. So when the Messiah was preached to Barnabas early on in the book of Acts, He already was worshiping Yahweh. He already was Torah observant. He just did not yet receive Yeshua of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. So when he was shown the good news, shown the evangel of the gospel, he then accepted the man from Nazareth as the Messiah. But Paul didn't only take Barnabas with him up to Jerusalem. He also took another man named Titus. Titus was not a Hebrew. Galatians 2 verse 3 calls Titus a Greek. He has a Greek name, Titus. The reason that I believe that Paul brings Barnabas and Titus with him is to represent the two types of people that are receiving the good news about the Messiah. Judahite and Gentile, Yehudim and Goyim, Hebrew and heathen, circumcised and uncircumcised. See, Titus wasn't raised in the land of Israel. Titus was not circumcised on the eighth day because his parents did not follow the Torah. Titus was a man that came to faith in Yeshua outside of being part of the Yehudim of Israel. So Barnabas and Titus represented the two different types of people. See, anyone that was not attached to Judah, Jerusalem, and the worship of Yahweh was considered a goyim or an outsider to the faith of Israel. The word Gentiles in the New Testament is a word that describes non-covenant people. Sure, I believe that the word can describe divorced and scattered Israelites, but I do not believe that the word is limited to divorced Israelites exclusively. The word, as it is predominantly used in the New Testament, is a word that describes heathen people that are not members of the covenant of Yahweh. And it's not just used that way in the New Testament. It's also used that way in the Greek Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint. A couple of verses, you can find many, many of them, but a couple of verses are in Leviticus 26, verses 33 and 38, 
where the Greek word ethnos or ethne, translated in our Bibles as nation, nations, Gentile or Gentiles, is used of heathen, non-Israelite people all through the Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. All you have to do is just search a concordance. When Yeshua is teaching us to love our enemies in Matthew 5, remember when he says, it's easy to love people that love you back? It's easy for me to love Brother Jerry because he shows me so much love. But Yeshua says, if you love only those that love you, what reward is there in that? Don't also the Gentiles do the same? Ethne, ethnos. He's talking about the heathens. See, even heathens out in the world, atheists, agnostics out in the world that care nothing about Yahweh, they still love people that love them back. They have no problem with that. So what reward is there in that? The reward is when you love someone that doesn't love you back. When you pray for someone that curses you. When you bless someone that despitefully uses you. My point, though, in bringing up this in Matthew 5 is that Yeshua likely used the Hebrew or Aramaic equivalent of the word goyim. And he was speaking of heathen people that loved other heathen people. That's how the word Gentiles is used predominantly in the New Testament. The word Gentiles does not inherently or linguistically mean non-Israelite. But the word Gentiles also does not linguistically mean Israelite. (laughs) It's a word that's used. Words are defined by their usage. That's how you define words, how they're used in the Bible. And the word is used in the Bible as a non-covenant person. That's how it's used. Somebody that's outside of the worship of Yahweh, outside of the covenant. So my point is that if you were not in covenant with Yahweh in Jerusalem, if you were not a Yehudim, that grew up serving Yahweh, then it did not matter what your ancestral background was. It did not matter if your great-grandfather was an Israelite before he got scattered and sifted into the nations. You were still considered outside of the covenant because you didn't grow up worshiping Yahweh. You didn't grow up circumcised. You didn't grow up being taught the Torah by your parents. When the house of Israel was scattered and sifted amongst the heathen, what did they become known as? Heathens, Gentiles, nations, goyim. They were just as much outside of the covenant as a barbarian or as a Scythian. And we'll talk about both of those groups in a later sermon in Galatians chapter 3. So to the Judahites in the first century, there existed only two groups of people. One, themselves in covenant with Yahweh. And two, everybody else outside of covenant with Yahweh. And Titus, to a first century Yehudim, that had the temple, had the Torah, had circumcision... Titus would have been considered outside the covenant because he didn't grow up the way that they grew up. So Paul brings these two men with him to represent two types of people that have received the gospel. Both Judahite, Yosef Barnabas, and Gentile, Titus. Both circumcised, Barnabas, and uncircumcised, Titus. In order to receive the forgiveness of sins, each man, Barnabas and Titus, had to place his faith in the Messiah. Each man had to believe in the Messiah. It was the same message of salvation. The message of salvation that was preached to Barnabas, the Hebrew, the exact same salvation message was preached to Titus, the uncircumcised Greek. It wasn't believe in Yeshua, Barnabas. You got everything else right, believe in Yeshua. And then to Titus, believe in Yeshua plus get circumcised and become a Yehudim. That wasn't the gospel. 
Believe in Yeshua, Barnabas. Believe in Yeshua, Titus. When those men did that, when they believed, when they trusted, when they put their faith in the Son of Yahweh, they would receive the forgiveness of sins. Because see, Titus wasn't the only one that had sin. Barnabas, even though he was a Hebrew and he was Torah observant, he still had sin. You're listening to a man preach today that's Torah observant. If you come live in my house, we observe the Torah. That doesn't mean I'm without sin. That doesn't mean I'm a sinless man. Barnabas wasn't sinless, but he was Torah observant. He had to... He had to receive the forgiveness of sins just like Titus. See, that's because the first use of the Torah is to drive us and point us to the Savior. So it would have been a distortion of the gospel to teach believe in Yeshua plus do something else and then receive the forgiveness of sins. If they taught that to Titus, that would have distorted the good news of the Messiah. Let's move on in Galatians 2.2. 2 we learn that the reason that Paul went back to Jerusalem after all these years, after the 14 years, was because of a revelation. This revelation is a prophecy. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, that's the best way to interpret Scripture. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you look at the book of Acts, the revelation is a prophecy from a man named Agabus, a prophet, a new covenant prophet. He's mentioned in Acts 11, verse 28 and following. And Agabus was a prophet that had been shown by the Holy Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the inhabited earth. The Greek word there in Acts 11 is the oikomene. It's not the cosmos, but it's the oikomene, the inhabited land, the Roman Empire, so to speak. This is actually, I believe, for my studies, this is actually one of the famines that Yeshua prophesied about in Matthew 24. But that's for another time and another sermon. This famine would hit the brothers in Judea fiercely. So the congregations in the Messiah, they began to send material relief for the victims of the famine in Judea before the famine ever happened. And praise Yahweh. Yahweh showed prophet Agabus the famine was going to happen. It was going to hit these Judean brothers very fiercely. And so the congregations like in Antioch, they started collecting material, food, clothing, things like that, and they would send it to the brothers in Judea. And one of the ways that they sent it was by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul went. See, the early Judean believers that would get hit hard by the famine, one of the reasons they would get hit hard by it is because they lived very frugal. They were very poor. They were known in Hebrew as the Evionim, which means the poor ones. Why were they considered poor? Well, a lot of them took Yeshua's words about selling all that you have giving it to the poor, a lot of them took his word literally. A lot more than we do. They read where he said or heard that he said, lay not for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust do corrupt and thieves break through and steal. And they took him strict and straight and they took him literally. So the book of Acts, early on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 verse 45 and also Acts chapter 4 verses 32 through 37 tells us that many of the early believers sold their possessions. And then they took the money, which was silver, that they acquired from the selling price, and they went and gave it over to the apostles. And then the apostles would distribute, to everybody that did that, the apostles would distribute out as everyone had need. They had all things in common. Talk about not laying up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. They got me whooped in that department. So they were not rich people materially. And as Scripture commands, we're required to give to the poor. 
I've been doing a study on giving to the poor recently in my private time. And you would be surprised. I know we all know the scripture says it, but you would be surprised if you looked at every verse where Yahweh talks about giving to the poor, like the widows and the orphans and the poor, especially those of the household of faith. It's all through the scriptures. I mean, it's a commandment, and there's a blessing in that. So we're required to give to the poor, especially those of the household of faith. So this is what the more wealthy Messianic believers were doing. Like the ones in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were stationed for many years, they were more wealthy. They didn't have all things in common. They didn't live like the Judean brothers. So they were sending relief ahead of time so that when the famine hit, the Judean brothers would be taken care of. This is what Galatians 2.2 is talking about, where Paul says, I went up because of a revelation. Now, Galatians 2.2 doesn't tell us what that revelation is, but by comparing Scripture with Scripture in Acts 11, we learn the revelation was from prophet Agabus about the famine. Now, in the second half of Galatians 2.2, Paul goes on to write that he went to Jerusalem to present to the leaders, or the elders, the gospel that he preached among the nations. But he did this in private so that he might not be running in vain. And this is a key point that I'd like to spend the rest of this lesson discussing. We're going to take a little time discussing this. We learned in chapter 1 that Paul did not receive his gospel from man. But here at the beginning of chapter 2, we get balance. We learn that this does not mean that he disrespected the authority of the elders in Jerusalem. When Paul went to Jerusalem to present what he had been doing, how he had been, one, teaching the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Goyim, and two, how that when the Gentiles receive that gospel, when they say, we believe in the Messiah, we believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, Paul did not force them to be circumcised. That's the gospel to the Gentiles that Paul was presenting here in verse 2 of Galatians chapter 2 to the elders of Jerusalem. And when he visited Jerusalem to discuss this, he didn't just bust up into the city and start shouting everything that he had been doing. That's not how he did it. The Bible says that he went privately to the leaders. Now what I see in this is that Paul was a man of peace and unity. Paul did not want to stir up discord with his message. I told somebody this past week, you know where the Bible says, these six things Yahweh hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. I think it's in the book of Psalms, either Psalms or Proverbs. And we talk about hands that shed innocent blood and we think about abortion and definitely Yahweh hates that. But there at the end of that list, it says, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. And a lot of times we don't think that that is as hated as maybe abortion, but according to that passage in Psalms, it is. And so Paul didn't want to sow discord. He didn't want to stir up discord. He wanted to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, verse 3. And he went and talked to the, to the leaders in private at the congregation of Jerusalem. Men like Kepha, Yaakov, and Yohanan, Peter, James, and John. Galatians 2, verse 9, we read it moments ago, calls these men pillars, pillars in the congregation. What's a pillar? It's something that holds up the congregation. A lot of times we refer to people that we know and that we love and that are very active members in the congregation and help out ministerially in serving the, the flock. We say they're a pillar in the church. They're a pillar. And that's what Peter, James, and John were. 
doctrinally as, as elders. They were pillars in the congregation. These were special men with authority. These were men that Yeshua had given authority to. Yeshua did not give authority to everybody nilly-willy. He had special men. There will be men whose very names are written on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. I would venture to say that they're more special than Brother Matthew. Doesn't mean Yahweh doesn't love me, but Yahweh has certain hand-picked, selected men and women that he gives special privilege to. Yeshua also gave these men the power or the authority to bind and to loose. Whatever they bound on earth was bound in heaven. Whatever they, whatever they loosed on earth was loosed in heaven. Kepha, Yaakov, and Yohanan, Peter, James, and John were some of these men. There's an early tradition concerning the authority of Yaakov or James, the brother of Yeshua. Remember, Paul calls him the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19. That's what Shaul calls him. Well, in one early A.D. manuscript, we find this saying about Yaakov. It says this, quote, The disciples said to Yeshua, We know that you will depart from us. Who is to be our leader? Yeshua said to them, Wherever you are, you are to go to Yaakov the righteous. You may know him as James the just. For whose sake heaven and earth came into being. End of quote. Now that last phrase, for whose sake heaven and earth came into being, that's a hyperbole phrase. Hyperbole means you exaggerate something for the sake of emphasis. You're trying to get your point across. For whose sake heaven and earth came into being was used by the Judaites to speak of somebody that had high authority upon the earth. And Yaakov, James, had that authority. There's an early church historian by the name of Eusebius. I have his book at the house. It's called Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History or Church History. And Eusebius records that the apostles of Yeshua handpicked James, handpicked Yaakov as the bishop or the overseer of the Jerusalem congregation. Eusebius tells us that James' great piety is why he acquired the nickname or the surname the just or the righteous, James the just, James the righteous. And when I say great piety, I meant his service to Yahweh's instructions, his service to Yahweh's law. It's recorded that James was allowed to enter the holy place in the temple and that he would kneel to pray for the forgiveness of the people and he would pray and kneel so much that his knees became like the pads on a camel's knees. And Paul respected the authority that Yaakov had been given by the Master and by the original apostles. And Paul wanted to make certain that he was not running in vain. What does that mean? Galatians 2 verse 2. I didn't, I didn't want to run in vain. That's a metaphor. You think of a race where you've got a bunch of people running in, in a race. And let's say somebody gets off the path and they're just going and they're smiling and they're thinking, man, I'm going to win the race. Then all of a sudden somebody stops them and says, hey, what are you doing? They say, well, I'm in the Peachtree Road race. Well, you're on the wrong road. Well, what does that mean? All that effort that was put forth was in vain. It was for naught. You weren't in the proper race. That's what Paul's saying. I want to make sure that the gospel that I'm preaching to the Gentiles is not incorrect. I haven't been preaching for naught or preaching for nothing. That he wasn't doing anything wrong by allowing the Gentiles to receive the same salvation in the Messiah that the Judahites received, even though the Gentiles were uncircumcised. I know I received this from heaven, but I've got to run it by the elders, the original apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Paul knew if this message is really true, 
then they will receive it. They'll believe me and they'll receive me and they'll receive my message. The leadership authority was respected. I'm going to quote a few verses here. I'll say them and then I'll quote them. You can write them down if you take notes. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Earlier in that same chapter in Hebrews 13 verse 7 it says, Remember your leaders who have spoken the Almighty's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Another passage, 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 16, says this. Brothers, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. And also 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 through 13 says, Now we ask you brothers to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Master and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I find, especially in the Messianic, Hebrew roots, Torah-observant community, a disrespect for authority and leadership in the congregation. I've also found it in Pentecostalism. A great disrespect in Pentecostalism and also the Messianic, Hebrew roots, Torah-observant faith for leadership and authority in the congregation. It's as though everybody thinks that they're, they can just read and study all by themselves. And instead of sola scriptura, they say solo scriptura, right? We're just going to go solo. I'm not going to let any man tell me what I need to believe, all right? There's balance. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But obviously, all of these verses clearly say submit, respect leaders. And so what we have to do is recognize that sometimes, like for instance in Matthew 23, and I've taught through Matthew 23, where Yeshua is talking against teachers or against elders or things like that, He is rebuking the abuse of leadership. You know, there is such a thing where leaders can abuse their authority. And then they are to be resisted, right? But obviously there are other passages that teach that people do have leadership. They do have authority in the congregation. For instance, Yeshua told Peter himself. He said, I will give you, talking to Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter was special. Then he told Peter, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, binding and loosing in this context is not about casting out devils, as I was taught growing up. I was taught, Pentecostal church, that you bind a demon on earth and he'll be bound in heaven. That's what that verse is talking about. But it's not what it is talking about in context. Binding and loosing is the authority to make ruling decisions upon the earth. And the apostles and men like Yaakov, early followers of Yeshua, they were given the power or the keys to bind things or make ruling decisions upon the earth and therefore it would be the same in the kingdom of heaven. The original apostles and elders that knew Yeshua were given authority to make decisions based upon their understanding 
of the Scriptures. And the congregations had to trust that Yahweh would work through these men and lead through these men. Do you know that this is what the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is all about? If you study Acts 15, you will find that there are two men primarily who lead that council. And their names are Peter and James. James makes the final ruling decision. Peter stands up and it says, Elohim made choice among us that by my mouth this message would be first preached to the Gentiles. And he's talking about Acts 10 with Cornelius. Well, that's what Acts 15 is all about. Acts 15 verse 2 says that Paul and Barnabas, among others, went to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. There were some that says you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas were saying, no, that's not true. Some people were saying, yes, it is true. Some were saying, no, it's not true. What did they do? They went to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders concerning that matter. And finally, if you read Acts 15, finally, James stands up and he basically says, and this is my version, my translation, everybody shut up and listen to me. I'm the main man. That's what he says. I'm the main guy. And then he begins to quote out of the book of Amos. And then he makes a ruling decision. And he says, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles with everything right now. We're going to give them four necessary things to come out of their idolatry. And then they'll attend the Sabbath service every week. And they'll learn. They'll hear Moses being read. And they'll learn. And they'll grow at their own pace. But we're not going to say that they have to be circumcised first in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. That's a distortion of the gospel. That's what the Jerusalem Council is all about. The elders in Jerusalem, ultimately, they make the decision. Yes, the Gentiles can have salvation the exact same way that we have salvation. We're not going to put a burden upon them that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. If you try to say that a man has to keep the Torah in order to have salvation, you just condemn yourself and everybody else. And the reason is this, is because everybody in here has violated the Torah at one point in their life. And I will tell you, you're going to violate it again. I'm not saying that it's okay when you do. But I'm saying you're going to violate it again. Your flesh is going to rise up between now and the time you die. And you're going to make a wrong decision. And you're going to have to say, Father Yahweh, I am sorry. Forgive me for my sin. I'm going to repent and try to do better the next day. That's just how it is. So we're not justified by the law. The law points us to the Savior. And then the law to a born from above man shows us how we ought to live. Shows us how we ought to interact with people. It's a way of life. It's not a means for salvation. So, I believe that Paul understood the authority structure of the elders in Jerusalem from the Torah. He knew Deuteronomy. Let's turn to this one. This is kind of lengthy. So, Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, I believe he was pulling from. Remember, he went to Jerusalem. One of the reasons was to present to the elders in private the gospel that he'd been preaching so that he would hopefully find out he had not been running in vain. Why did he go to the elders? Why did he respect their authority? Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13. The Bible says, If a case is too difficult for you concerning bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, cases disputed at your gates, you must go up to the place Yahweh, your mighty one, chooses. You are to go to the Levitical priests, and to the judge who presides at that time. Ask and they will give you a verdict in the case. You must abide by the verdict they give you at the place Yahweh chooses. 
Be careful to do exactly as they instruct you. You must abide by the instruction they give you and the verdict they announce to you. Do not turn to the right or the left from the decision they declare to you. The person who acts arrogantly, refusing to listen, either to the priest who stands there serving Yahweh your mighty one or to the judge, must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear about it, be afraid, and no longer behave arrogantly. We also find in Exodus 18, which was one of our chapters in reading the Torah this week, that the people would come to who to learn about the law? They would come to a Levite. They would come to Moses. And Moses, remember when Jethro came to him and said, what are you doing? Moses said, the people come to me and I teach them the statutes and the laws that they are to live by. A nice little nugget for you is that Moses says that before Mount Sinai which lets us know that many of Yahweh's laws existed prior to being written on tablets of stone. Or else how could he teach the people the statutes and laws prior to Mount Sinai? That's just a little nugget put in your pocket and pull it out when you want to, right? Share it with somebody. My point is is that there were certain men that Yahweh gave and Yeshua gave authority to to lead. And some of those men were the apostles of Yeshua and Yeshua's brother, Yaakov. He gave them the same authority that the priests and the judges had in the days of Moses. So, brothers and sisters, whether or not we want to accept this, Yahweh works through authority structures. And when you join a congregation today, you are in essence saying that you trust the established elders of that congregation. Right? Why else would you join? I wouldn't join a congregation that I didn't trust the leadership of, I wouldn't. Doesn't mean I would necessarily be ugly to them, but I would never join. I would never say, hey, I want to be a member here of this congregation, whether it's a member on paper or just a member in our hearts and in our minds. I wouldn't join if I wasn't willing to submit to righteous authority, righteous leadership. You're not saying, let's, let's balance this a little bit. You're not saying that the elders are perfect. You're not saying that they can't make a mistake. But you are saying this, I'm joining this congregation because I trust the elders that lead this congregation. Now, I'm going to say a few things here that I don't really want to say, but I have to because I think it's part of Galatians 2 verse 2. I think it's teaching the principle of this passage. If you're sitting here today and you consider me as your pastor, then you must have a strong amount of trust that Yahweh is leading and guiding me in the work that I'm doing. If you don't, if you don't trust that Yahweh is dealing with me and leading and guiding me, why would you be sitting here? Right? On a regular basis. I'm not talking about necessarily a visitor, but on a regular basis. Why would you be sitting here? Whatever congregation a person decides to join, he or she should join with the knowledge of submitting to the elders in that congregation and the overseer in that congregation. And this is the part that we don't like. But if we only submit when we agree, are we really submitting? No. If my wife and I discuss a matter, and I express to my wife after I listen to her, after I take to heart what she has to say, and she says, Honey, I think we need to go this route, 
and we pray about it, and we read the Bible about it, and we study about it, we meditate on it, but in the end, because Yahweh has placed the man as the priest of the home, hopefully we believe that, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, as Christ is the head of the church, as the Messiah is the head of the congregation, so the husband is the head of the wife. So if you don't believe that the husband is the head of the wife, then you can't believe that the Messiah is the head of the congregation. Okay, so if we discuss that, and I honor my wife as the weaker vessel, but in the end I say, Tisha, I love you, I've listened to everything you've said, but I think we need to go in another direction. I really think what you're saying is not proper, and we need to go in another direction. She can still disagree with me, but her submission is seen in saying, all right, Matthew, we're going to go with what you say. Submission is most clearly seen when you submit, even when you disagree. My wife would not be submitting to me if every time she disagreed, she didn't follow along with me. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I preach for long enough to learn that a lot of times when you preach a sermon, people selectively hear, I'm not necessarily talking about you as a particular group of people, but a lot of times when you preach or when you, when you give a talk, people selectively hear what they think that you're saying instead of what you said. I'm not saying to blindly follow me or any man. I'm not saying to do that. There's always an amount of tension that comes when you see something different in the Scriptures than the man or the, or the men, the elders, that you put your trust in to lead you. And these two extremes people opt for in this tension are generally wrong. This is the two extremes. Generally, people say, I don't need to listen to what any man tells me. I'm going to be over here in my corner. I'm going to study the Bible for myself. And the Holy Spirit is going to show me what I need to believe. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, I'm just going to go by everything that the man tells me. I'm not going to study my Bible. I'm just going to go by everything that the man tells me. Generally, not all the time, but generally the truth is somewhere right in the middle of both extremes. So we shouldn't blindly follow a man and we shouldn't go over here and think solo scriptura instead of solo scriptura and just stay by ourselves and think Yahweh's just going to drop everything down from heaven. Sometimes Yahweh does reveal things to us directly from heaven. But sometimes Yahweh uses a child to reveal something to you or another saint to reveal something to you. Or Yahweh has revealed things to me through my wife or through my friends or through doing a job. It's because Yahweh works in different ways and through different vessels. All I'm saying is this. Respect the office of authority that Yahweh places in His assembly. Now this is where I'm at. I've told people that if I did not have this congregation, if I wasn't part of this congregation, whether as a, a shepherd or as a person in the, in the chair listening, I would find one. I would find a congregation to go to where I trusted the leadership and I would join that congregation. And if I had a dispute with the elders or the overseer, I would not spread dissension through the body. I would go privately like Paul did to the elder. And I would seek to express my views. I would say, look, I see something differently than what you're talking about. And I would study the matter out with the leaders. I would do everything in my power to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I'm saying that now as, as a 36-year-old man that's pastored for 12 years but if you would have 
met me in my early 20s and my mid-20s, I didn't obey what I just said. I had a lot of zeal, but not all of it was according to knowledge. And I spread some dissension and some discord that I think could have been kept from being spread. And I think that just comes with spiritual maturity. Um, I think at that time I was a novice. Um, Brother Arnold came to me. I was 25 years old. Brother Arnold came to me one time and he said, Matthew, I want you to kind of take over the congregation. I kind of want you to, to lead up things here. And maybe he saw something in me or maybe Yahweh was working through him. But I didn't teach. I didn't teach here before before that. And looking back now, you could not have told me this at the age of 25. But looking back now, what I would have liked to have done then is say, give me five years and let me prep. And when I get 30 years old, I'll take over. Even Yeshua, the son of Yahweh, didn't begin his ministry till he was 30 years old, right? So I'm no better than him, that's for sure. If I went to the elders of this hypothetical church that I joined because I trusted the leadership, if I continued to disagree with that leadership, but it was not a matter of eternal salvation. Let's say there was a disagreement on a certain doctrine, but it wasn't a matter of eternal salvation. It wouldn't save or condemn. Then I would submit to the authority structure that I placed myself under when I joined that congregation. That doesn't mean I would agree with their doctrine. But I would submit and I would not stir up discord and dissension in that fellowship. If it was a matter, if we studied it out with those elders, and it was a matter of eternal salvation, then I would have to part ways with that congregation. I could not any longer sit up under somebody that I believed would be condemned eternally to the lake of fire. I think that we've inherited a Lone Ranger mentality to some degree from our Protestant ancestors. We talk about the Protestant Reformation as though it was all good. One of the mentalities that came along with the Protestant Reformation is this Lone Ranger mentality that thinks we're all by ourselves in interpreting the Bible. and We don't need anybody else telling us what it means. You know, we don't talk like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Remember when he was reading the prophet Isaiah and the Spirit brought Philip up to him? And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? What did the eunuch say? Very humble. How can I? lest some man should guide me. And Philip began at that scripture and preached Yeshua to the eunuch. And he must have preached baptism because the next thing out of the eunuch's mouth is, well, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the eunuch said, I believe that Yeshua is the son of Yahweh. And they both went down in the water and Philip baptized the eunuch. And he went on his way rejoicing. Hallelujah. So the eunuch said that. Gamaliel, the man that Shaul sat up under uh, before he came to faith in Messiah, the Judahite teacher, it is recorded that one of his ancient sayings of uh, teacher Gamaliel was this, quote, Do not rely on your own interpretation. Take upon yourself a teacher and remove all doubt, end of quote. Something to think about. Proverbs says, In a multitude of counsel, there is safety. Anytime that I prepare a sermon, I try to consult as many men as possible what they believe about it. I've talked to people before outside of this congregation and I've told them something like, you know, the other day I was reading Adam Clark's commentary or the other day I was reading uh, the writings of Eusebius or the other day I was reading the history of the Judahites by Flavius Josephus. And they'll say, whoa, 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 whoa. 
I don't read any of that. That's just the words of man. I don't read any of that. The funny thing is, is then they begin to tell me their own comment on a verse. Anytime you write something down that you believe, or anytime you speak, or anytime that we put nowadays in the days of social media, we put posts on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, uh, some kind of understanding of a Bible verse or passage, anytime you do that, you're becoming a commentator on that particular verse. So we have a man like Adam Clark who spent most of his life, he dedicated, meditate on this, brothers and sisters whom I love, Adam Clark dedicated most of his life to writing a commentary on the whole Bible. Brother Arnold actually has the physical books. There's two books and they're about this thick a piece. This thick a piece and it's very small print. Let me tell you something. That is not something that you just sit down and do overnight or in one year. I personally have written a commentary on the first two chapters of the book of Luke. And I still haven't released it because I'm still working on it in, in the minutiae and, and working all the little kinks out, so to speak. But it took me to write a commentary on two chapters in the book of Luke. It took me about two years. A lot of study. A lot of research. And so we got a man that spent most of his life researching the Bible and also historical texts to write a commentary. doesn't mean he's always right, but he spent that much of his life to write a commentary on the Bible and we're going to sit back and point our finger and act like that's not a big deal? That's huge. That's a big deal. Man, that's, that's way more than any of us have ever done. This is a man that did not spend his time scrolling through Facebook or spend his time on the email or on the internet or watching a baseball game or a football game. He spent his time studying the Bible. Once again, that doesn't mean that he's infallible. It doesn't mean that he's always right. But I think we owe it to Mr. Clark. He lived back in the 1800s to say, well, let me check out what he says. He spent some time studying. He has just as much right to study as Matthew does or as Brother Jerry does. So it really grates on me when people say, I don't read commentaries, and then they turn around and give me their comment on a Bible verse. So listen, we are all in this together. We should all learn from one another. Yeshua says in Matthew 23, we are all brothers and sisters in the faith. I had a lady the other day, precious lady, 88 years old, black woman. I did a job for her. I prayed with her and her husband. Her husband was getting Alzheimer's. And I prayed with her. And I tell you what, they, I said a prayer, you know, just a very simple prayer. And they were just a praising and talking the whole time I was praying and in their late 80s. She began to cry and she told me she felt lonely and she felt depressed and nobody ever visited her and I began to cry and she laid her head on my shoulder and that made me cry even more. And I told her, I said, I, you know, I said, you don't know this. I said, but I actually teach the Bible. I, I'm actually a preacher at a congregation. And she said, oh, she said, I need to call you reverend. And I said, no, no. I said, don't call me reverend. I said, you just call me brother, brother Matthew. I've had a lot of people tell me, what do I call you? Do I call you Pastor Matthew? Brother Frankie jokes around and calls me Pastor M. I say, no, don't call me Pastor. Just call me Brother. Because like Yeshua says, and like Peter says, if a person is a shepherd, he's not the Lord over Yahweh's heritage, but he's to be an example to the flock. So I don't get up here. I wanted to put a plaque on this pulpit, and I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to put a plaque on this pulpit that says something like this. This pulpit is not designed to be a whipping post. A man should never get in a pulpit and whip saints week in and week out. 
but preach the truth in love and be an example and let the Holy Spirit... We get involved and try to do the Holy Spirit's job. And that job's above our pay grade. But we try to change people instead of letting the Spirit of Yahweh change people. See, it's, it's, not, it's not our job. So we all learn from one another. And Paul could learn from Peter and James. And Peter and James could learn from Paul. But in Galatians 2 verse 2, Paul understood that when it came down to the final straw, he had to present what he was doing to the Jerusalem elders. That's what he says. I went and took it to them in private so that I would make sure I wasn't running in vain. So, I don't like to say that I'm the pastor here, but Yahweh has put me here. A lot of times I wish that I wasn't. Not because I don't love you, but because it's a big responsibility. I get a lot of phone calls. I get a lot of tears, a lot of people. And I, sometimes I tell Tisha, I said, if there were two or three of me, it would be great. Because I could do a lot more if there was two of me, and especially if there was three of me. But I don't think we believe in cloning, so we're not going to try to do anything like that. But I promise you, I promise you, one thing, you can, you can take this to the bank. I will do my best never to lord over anybody in this congregation. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not a lord. I'm a servant. That's what the word minister means. It means to serve. And I promise you, I will, I will try my best not to beat you over the head with anything. I love the sheep here at this congregation. And you know in Ephesians 4 where it talks about the, the offices in the ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Do you know that Greek word for pastor there is the exact same Greek word that's used for a shepherd over a flock of sheep, literally. It's because a pastor does the work of a shepherd. And that shepherd, he doesn't go out there and holler and beat his sheep every morning. He trains them and he teaches them. He leads them by example. He makes them lie down in green pastures and leads them beside still waters. And that's the job of a, of a pastor. And Yeshua, boy, he got onto them when they abused that authority. But as long as a man stayed in, in the proper parameters of his authority, that authority was respected. So if, if and when, I know I've been a little lengthy tonight, but I wanted to kind of make myself clear so I wouldn't be misunderstood. If and when you ever come to me to talk about a matter, doctrinally, something you may disagree with, I promise you I will listen to you and I will take heart everything that you say to me. I will never have anyone come to me and act like it doesn't matter what you say because you're you and I'm me. No. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's not right. I will listen to everything that you have to say. And if we end up disagreeing for the time being, if we disagree, and it's not an eternal, you don't see it as an eternal matter of salvation. It's not something that's going to send me to the lake of fire if I keep believing it. Then you have to ask yourself, because you're part of this congregation, I'm the minister here, you have to ask yourself, do I believe that the Most High is working through my pastor and my shepherd? Do I believe that? And if your answer is yes, say, yes, I do believe that, then Hebrews 13, 17 applies to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. That's a Bible verse. But you know what? That doesn't just apply to you as me as your pastor. That also applies to me. Every man ought to have a shepherd. The man that I consider to be my pastor and my shepherd is Brother Arnold. And let me tell you, I've been meditating on this 
authority and leadership for a long time, for about a year, year and a half now. And it's made me do some things differently that I have not done before. And so we're all growing in grace and in knowledge. We're all learning together. You know the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5 that you're not supposed to even rebuke an older man. But you're to entreat him as you would your own father. And Lord knows I would never rebuke my daddy. He probably would still whoop me if I did, even though I'm 36. But I would, I would entreat him as a father. We're not to rebuke an older man. I'm not to talk to an older man like I talk to little David. I'm to entreat them as a father. Same thing with the older women. Now, here's the tough part. If you end up, if you meditate and discuss with me and you end up believing that Yahweh is not working through me as a pastor and a shepherd, well, then that's between you and Yahweh. And I will still love you and I will still be kind if we part ways. That's between you and Yahweh. That's a decision you have to make. If you think I've overstepped my bounds of authority, you say, Brother Matthew, I cannot continue. I cannot continue to sit up under your ministry. That's a decision you'll have to make. And we'll pray that either Yahweh helps me or Yahweh helps you because it could be either one of us and maybe both of us got a little growing to do. Now, do you love Yahweh today? Amen. Do you still love me today? Amen. I promise you. I didn't want to say a lot of the things that I said today simply because I've seen so many men abuse authority. I've seen so many pastors get the big head, you know, and uh, that's not me. That wasn't our Messiah. Our Messiah didn't come to be served, but to serve. He washed the disciples' feet. He even washed the feet of the man that he knew was going to betray him just moments later. He knelt down and washed Judas Iscariot's feet. I felt that I had to teach on this, and you know why? Not because I picked it out to teach on, but Galatians 2 verse 2 speaks of this. So I had to teach it. And now we're through with it. I believe, I honestly believe that if the elders at Jerusalem, if Kepha and Yaakov, Kepha, the man that was given the keys to the kingdom, and Yaakov, the bishop of the this congregation at Jerusalem, I honestly believe if they would have took Paul to the side and said, Paul, you've messed up, brother. We do need to circumcise these Gentiles in order to, for them to receive forgiveness. If they would have told Paul that, I believe Paul would have had, have had to have bowed to their authority and their leadership because they were the ones that Yeshua gave authority to. But that didn't happen. They gave Paul and Barnabas what? The right hand of fellowship. Not the left hand. Sometimes I feel like people give me the left hand of fellowship. They gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and said, we're with you. You're teaching right. They're saved by grace through faith, just like us. Nobody needs to force them to be circumcised in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. The passage, once again, we'll get on this later. The passage is not about necessarily the commandment of circumcision. It's about circumcision as a rite of passage into forgiveness doesn't mean that, a, that Titus could not choose to get circumcised. He could. But it's not a rite of passage. You're not saved by, by something that you do. You're saved by grace through faith and trust, faith, belief in the one that Yahweh has sent to forgive you of your sins. We'll pick this back up with verse 3 where it says, But not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And follow him. That's going to be a fun verse. So let's stand and close in a word of prayer.
Oh, Father Yahweh, thank you so much. I honestly feel like I get to teach some of the best and brightest students of your word each and every week. And Father, we are a small congregation, but that's okay. We're mighty. Not many in number, but I believe we're mighty in heart, mighty in spirit. Help me, Yahweh Father. I feel that there's been sermons that I've taught in my past that I wished I would not have taught. Or sermons I've taught that may have been true and I taught them in the wrong attitude, in the wrong spirit. And I, I'm working on that and I pray that you continue to help me um, as, as the pastor, as the shepherd here of this congregation. Help me, Yahweh. S- put me in line, Father. And uh, Yahweh, let me treat each and every person here as a fine jewel um, and a precious price because they've all been bought with the blood of your son. And that means they're worth so, so, so much. So, Father Yahweh, I pray that I would respect and, and love on every every person here as, as time allows, as you allow me to. And, and I pray, Yahweh, Father, that uh, we just continue to have a good congregation and... and um, Yahweh, Father, I ask that you protect us from any wolves that seek to come in and stir up dissension that's not needed. I pray all these things in the name of your holy child, Yeshua of Nazareth. Amen. Amen. Yahweh bless you.